Hello and welcome to episode 39 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern my name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line, also here in Chicago, is the not-too-hot, not-too-cold, Lord of Fire and Ice, Dave Harbarger. Do you think that my sword inspired George R. R. Martin, or do you think my sword was inspired by George R. R. Martin? I was actually the inspiration for the entire Game of Thrones series of novels, my, my personal tribulations and trials. The events of Game of Thrones actually happened to Zach. Aren't you about <laughs> as old as the first book? Um... Ooh, am I? Was it released in 1992? 1996. Ooh, okay. Also with us in Chicago, the resident germ token, Zach Colhan. That's right. If you take away my sword, I die, quite frankly. Shane will not be on this week's episode. He's on a business trip, but we expect him back next week. We'll start this week with a look at GP Indianapolis and its Team Modern event to give us a glimpse at how New Modern is shaken out. Also on this week's Dive Down, we're going to talk about everyone's new favorite two-drop. It's Stoneforge Mystic. We begin with a dive into the card itself, the origins behind its position on the ban list, as well as the equipment package it's being paired with. We'll even talk about some additional equipment to keep an eye on. From there, we'll move on to a Stoneforge Mystic-themed sleeve believe heave, where each of us took a different Stoneforge deck through the MTGO gauntlet and have some more stories to share. Finally, we'll end with a listener question, but first, some housekeeping. Thank you to our newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Simon G, Eric K, Brendan C, Nathan M, Bert W, and Piper T. Very happy to have you all along. Also, thanks to Brian M for moving their support up a tier. It's a very cool gesture, and it means a lot to us. Our fans and listeners are very, very cool. Housekeeping is practically my favorite part of every episode. So thank you all again. But with all of that out of the way, let's hop over to Dave at this week's news desk. All right. This weekend was Magic Fest, Indianapolis. GP Motor City, baby. Not Motor City. Mm, that's debatable. <laughs> yeah. Not this time. One of these times it will be Motor City. All right. So Indianapolis was a team modern event. It was a not unified format. Um, for those of you who have never gotten an opportunity or taken a chance on playing a team event, I can tell you from experience, you should definitely do it. Just off the top, before we jump into results, I just want to give a nice ad for how fun these team events are. Basically, you get together with a team of two of your friends, play in a Grand Prix, you get to work together. And no matter what format it is, I found it to be pretty fun. Yeah, when you work together, you actually get to talk to the people next to you about some plays and decision points that you're in the middle of, if that's something you want to do. And what non-unified means is that there were no restrictions on the cards in a team's deck, as opposed to a unified team event where people can't have more than four copies of a single card other than basic lands across an entire team. Right. Makes it a little easier. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I've done a team limited event with Shane, uh, you know, host Shane as well. And um, it's really a lot of fun. So hope to try it again soon. I couldn't make it to the event this week, but maybe someday we'll get some team TDD out there for you all to see. <laughs> Featured match. <gasps> TDD versus TDD. Cause there's four of us. So we'd have to come up with some friends. Mm, I could, we could maybe do podcast versus podcast. We can keep that in mind for the future. Yeah. Hosts versus patrons. Maybe. Ooh, I love that too. <laughs> 
So the thing to keep in mind with team events is that it's really difficult to actually tell what's going on in the meta from the results of a team event, right? Because the results are not reported out by individual players, they're reported out by the team itself. So it's tough to tell because things have happened in the past where, for example, uh, one member of a three-person team has gone 0-8 on day one, and the other two people have gone 8-0. And as far as we would be able to tell, it would look like they all did great. And so we're going to take all these results with a grain of salt. So I think what we should do is start with the top four. We're going to talk about the, the top four teams and the decks that they played. And then we can talk a little bit about the broader meta really quickly, because that didn't come out until after the event was over. Almost the top 12, really. Yes, top 12 players into four teams. So in first place was Muhammad Qadi, Joseph Karani, and Kevin Brown, who were playing Wurza, Jeskai Stoneblade, and Burn, respectively. Um, I think to me, this felt like almost the most appropriate kind of team to, to win out the event like this, because it felt mm-hmm. like an interesting mix of decks, and the potential is a, portion, is a big portion of the top of the meta going forward from where we are right now. Yeah, it kind of feels like the three premier decks of modern at the moment yeah i mean that's setting aside titan which seems to be pretty powerful right now and also um mono green tron which is still really really powerful eldrazi tron yeah and eldrazi tron which is maybe kind of in that top as well but it feels to me like as far as the decks everybody's talking about right now where's a some version of of stoneforge mystic and burn are kind of where it's at totally the thing that's interesting is that the words of lists and the burn list were pretty stock the burn deck though was Zach's new favorite playset burn. The thing was really interesting about it though was that it had six horizon lands in it. It had four sunbaked canyons and two fiery islets, which is the most I think I've ever seen in a burn deck looking at, at GP lists recently, and it was the most that I saw from all the burn lists that I looked at this weekend. By the way, there were a lot of burn lists to look at this weekend. I think if we're in a position where people think the meta has slowed down and modern is returning to a turn four or five format. If you're burned, you probably want to be going extra, extra fast then to not deal with mid-range shenanigans or someone stabilizing. So I could see where this might be helpful. Absolutely. And then also I'd note that Urza did not was not playing Stoneforge Mystic either. It's just playing the Goblin Engineer package still. Seems like the tides are sort of turning towards that being the way to, to build the deck, but, but we'll see. Some people are still preferring bringing Stoneforge Mystic along for the ride as well. I'm a little surprised that this Wurza deck isn't playing Teferi Time Reveler also. I think that's such a good protection spell that this list can cast and i'm seeing teferi pop up in some lists online so that might be either technology that this person chose not to adopt or maybe they even felt that it was unnecessary but the interesting deck out of the trio i think was the jeskai stoneblade deck which is basically the stoneforge mystic package which we'll talk about in much more depth later this episode along with blue which is the traditional pairing that comes with it <laughs> and and then adding it red into the mix so that you could play lightning bolt lightning helix and a number of different kind of tempo spells like that i have good news for you dave this is the list that i played for this episode sleeve believe heave Stan, that's a spoiler alert i think they in the industry we call that a tease so we're going to talk about that a lot later, but definitely it made me excited because, you know, I don't know how many people on here know how much I love Jeskai, but you don't have to do much to talk me into playing a Jeskai deck. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know what you mean. Somebody get this guy a Jeskai deck. You know what I'm saying? Somebody get this guy some bolts and helixes, but no rift bolts. Like <laughs> Not a single rift bolt. <laughs> you know what? If I get the rift bolt, I send it back. Yeah. Uh, so quick question about helix. It's always been modern playable right from the get go of modern. 
is it just better right now? Do more decks have the ability to run it? I feel like I'm seeing more Helix than ever. I think one of the one of my opinions is that the life gain is a little bit more relevant as burn gets more popular. And I think it's a great spell to remove a Stoneforge Mystic or a Spell Queller uh, or even like some Planeswalkers. So there's lots of targets for it. And the presence of burn is putting like a lot of pressure on people's life totals. Absolutely. I have down to Takar and only to have it Helix before. So, hey. So let's move on to the second place uh, team which is Joseph Bernal, Matthew Hoey, and Andrew Tenjum. I think those are some Chicago players, actually, if I, if I remember right. They are. Which is pretty awesome to see. They were on Blue-White Stoneblade, Humans, and Burn, respectively. To me, this looked like kind of exactly what you'd imagine those lists would look like. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a similar team to the previous team that just swapped out uh, Wurza for Humans. So I think this is another kind of like, hey, these are the the class of the of of modern right now and a, a team that chose one of each and decided to run them all in fourth place we had nick roller james moskul and jonathan zolot on jund urza with stoneforge mystic and green tron and then in third fourth place we had chad harney jonathan hobbs and ali warfield on wurza grix's death shadow and green white aldrazi blade i guess is what i would call that that deck right now and to do a little bit of what i now know is called a tease I may or may not have played a green white Eldrazi blade deck for our Sleeve Believe section. Yeah, and I should mention that I played blue white Stone Blade for our Sleeve Believe Heave section as well. So we're going to talk a lot about Stoneforge Mystic decks coming up from that. But what what do you guys think about these twelve decks that represented the top of the the Grand Prix? Nothing too shocking for me. This seems like where modern is settling. Obviously, we have more to shake out. It's only been a little bit, but I don't see anything that is bizarre or upsetting or anything. This all seems like this is what modern is. You're going to probably play these decks if you play at a competitive REL event. I agree that like a lot of these are pretty much what we expect out of the meta right now. Um, I do think the green-white Eldrazi list is probably the most interesting of the ones in the top four in terms of like kind of a innovation on a previous strategy. Eldrazi wasn't previously running um, noble hierarchs um, and just like going into green for that and the ramp that Hierarch provides, I think is kind of interesting. Likewise, that Jeskai deck, I think is kind of innovative in that we haven't seen a Jeskai deck in a top eight in a long time. Yeah. But in terms of Wurza and Burn and even like Humans and Tron, I think a lot of these decks are pretty much what we expect, as Zach said. And, you know, for the record, this Grixa Shadow list, like we haven't seen Shadow in a top eight in like months, basically since Phoenix was the best deck. But Shadow is definitely making a comeback too. I mean, people, you know, we have seen Marty's shadow in top eights. We just haven't seen Grixis shadow in top eights. And and there were a lot of people who brought Grixis death shadow to this tournament. Um, I think the main thing that was interesting to me about the top 12 was that every one of these teams had a Stoneforge Mystic deck, but none of them had the same one. None of them really had ones that were even really close to being the same one. We had a Wurza deck that had Stoneforge, a blue-white control version. We had the Jeskai Tempo version. We had a full-on kind of mid-rangey, rampy one with green-white. And so it's interesting to start to see lots of different people ostensibly be um, successful with different takes on that. I also thought it was kind of interesting that three of the four teams had Wurza decks Mm -hmm. in them. And that is another one of those kind of like, hey... Every time we talk about something in modern, we got to remember that Wurza is there and getting stronger kind of every day. His power grows minute by minute. 
Exactly. I feel like people are going to start ringing the KCI alarm bells sometime with this. I've heard it already. I've heard it already. I'm not a big fan of those bells. I don't think the comparison is apt because you can interact with Wurza in a way that you kind of couldn't with KCI. And even though the Wurza combo, like it is triggers and sometimes they can just keep comboing off in response to you trying to interact. It's not breaking the rules in the way KCI did about using the mana ability and never passing priority. Stan, I totally agree. I think people feel bad because of Urza's mana ability, especially because it can't be shut off by a Pithing Needle or a Spyglass effect. And so like that can be frustrating. I do think that obviously it is not remotely on the same level of brokenness that KCI was. I do think that people do not like combo decks like this, and I feel like it's easy to call for action against decks like this because the play pattern is so unfun to play against. You know what I think think people don't like? I think people don't like the control slash combo Mox Opal decks. Ain't that the truth? Just full stop. So every time there's one of those, whether it's Lantern Control, whether it's, you know, War Prison, as it was called recently, and now it's Wurza, I I think people just don't like that deck and are going to talk badly about it no matter what. But let's see where it goes. Only time will tell. So real quick check-in on the overall meta, because amazingly, Channel Fireball today on Monday, the day after the Grand Prix completed, shared uh, a list of every deck that was in the Grand Prix. Wow. So I think if you haven't checked that out, it's worth going and looking at it. It's on the coverage.channelfireball.com page. They give you the the, uh, list of the decks and the point total for the team that goes with the decks, which is pretty cool to see. Um, but they also gave the full day one breakdown and the day two breakdown. And so I'm going to read really quickly all the decks above 3% in day one. Starting with the top of the heap was Burn with 12%. Mono Green Tron was the second most registered deck with 10%. Jund was at 7.5%. Wurzo was at 7%. Titan Shift was at 5.5%. Eldrazi Tron Grixis Death Shadow and Blue White Stoneblade were at about 4% each, and then Humans was at 3.8%. Pretty interesting spread there, I think. I mean, Titan Shift being that high is kind of like people taking cues from the Star City Games Open last week, I think. I think so, too. Yeah, I mean, Humans at 3.8% is so low for you know a deck that's always coming and going as just one of the best decks in the format. Yeah, I think people really just don't like it in this particular metagame right now, and we'll just see where it goes from here. I, I don't think there's anything to wor- any reason to worry about it too much, but I'm also not a humans player, so. Yeah, who knows? Maybe all the people that would play humans played Stoneforge decks instead, and we'll see the meta adjust after Stoneforge finds her several homes, her several <laughs> lovely coastal homes. Jund at the top of the list is very, very interesting as well, considering that in day two, now to talk quickly about what the day two meta looks like, Jund had 75 decks in day one and only had five in day two. It had a very, very low conversion rate, I think, as far as that goes, around 7%. Actually, none of the decks really had conversion rates that I think kind of crushed it necessarily, but the top decks in day two were Burn with 14%, so that one went up, Wurza with... 11%, 11%, so that one up, went up quite a bit. Mono Green Tron with 10%, which is close to what it had in day one. Titan Shift with 8%. And I'm going to stop with Grixis Death Shadow at 6.67%. From there, everything else down was right around 5%. Also interesting, there's four Mono Red Prowess decks on day two, which is a deck that I have been trying to, you know, s- 
replicate some of the results I had before the faithless looting ban. And I know Ryan Overturf is still really working on that strategy. And I just feel like I can't crack it. <laughs> it's like, it's lost so much velocity and like having the resilient threat that was a phoenix kind of come back over and over i think was a big knock to that strategy and it's kind of amazing for me to see that it's still like putting up results at these competitive events yeah i mean there always was a you know blue red kiln fiend deck that was lurking around the edges of modern and i feel like with the banning of phoenix uh the old phoenix deck and the kiln fiend deck just merged into one i think you're right it loses the resiliency and a little bit of the consistency it got from that but i've definitely lost to explosive kiln fiend turns and even when you remove one or two sometimes they have the third and obviously it's better when phoenix comes back but kiln fiend is a real threat i totally agree and i tried kiln fiend and i've got some turn three kills under my belt but with all these lightning helixes and lightning bolts and paths running around because of Stoneforge Mystic packages, as well as like Fatal Push and the Grixis Shadow decks, I find that it's just like really hard to close. Yeah, I agree. We're in a meta right now where Scred is like playable and maybe even tier two because of I think all the removal it has. Uh-huh. So if we're in a meta where removal is super powerful, maybe Kill and Fiend can even sprout to higher levels and more prowess after that sort of shift itself out a little bit. I mean, for me, the most interesting thing about that mono red prowess note was that that was the same number of uh, decks as blue white Stoneforge mystic decks, which was kind of the hype deck coming into the weekend. Right. So only four of those decks made day two, Um, you know, in spite of the fact that all four of the top four teams that we saw each had a Stoneforge deck. If you look at the number of decks that made day two, there were basically, I think, 12 decks that even had Stoneforge Mystic in them, which would place it right around Tron at 10% of the meta. So, and that's not even, you know, those aren't even close to necessarily the same game plan because the second best mono, the second best Stoneforge deck was Bant, which was, is kind of a, a more kind of creature based deck than blue white is and then green white eldrazi was tied with that for the same and that's a different kind of deck from that so it doesn't seem like there's a unified stoneforge plan yet which is why we have a zillion different stoneforge builds to talk to you about in sleep believe heave mm-hmm. so i think the the last thing that was pretty interesting is that burn clearly is the leader with what people think is going to be good in the meta right now uh it had the best that was the highest number of decks on day two in addition to being the highest number of decks on day one it was even really rampant in the mcqs on site from at indy from what i understand and one of those tournaments even had four burn decks in the top eight which is pretty amazing um i guess we should all be thankful that burn can probably be hated out pretty well if it gets to be something that's really unfun to play against it's it's funny to think that we would probably be really complaining if it was a deck like phoenix that had risen up to the top of the charts this fast but burn i think everybody just kind of feels like eh, it'll have its moment and then the meta will turn against it'll return to being a more normal kind of participant in the metagame i mentioned it last episode i'm totally okay with burn being good like dave said easily hit it out i think also I don't want to get too esoteric here, but I think Burn, it feels like a more pure form of magic than Phoenix does. Like, you're just pointing spells and swinging with creatures and, like, sometimes drawing cards with via light up the stage when you do run it. So I just feel like if there, it feels like there's less to argue about because no one thinks Bolt's too good. No one thinks Helix is too good. No one thinks uh, Skewer the Critics is too good, etc. So it's just a, hey, this is Burn. I'm doing it. And it's kind of hard to hate it, I think. So, Stan, I know you were there and played in MCQ. What what did you see at the at the kind of on-site meta while you were participating? Well, I can really speak mostly about the matches I played and I played all six matches. I faced Wurza twice. Uh and I actually didn't drop a game to them and 
I found that I had a lot of success casting counterspells against the Wurza deck, which is one of the reasons why I feel like it's no KCI, because KCI kind of laughed at counterspells. But when you add Teferi to Wurza, it becomes so much harder to interact with that deck that I feel like unless they absolutely can't shave slots for it, Teferi would just shore up some matchups that they might struggle with otherwise. And to be clear, you were playing Blue Moon, right? I was playing Blue Moon. So counter control deck, uh, sort of a different take on a blue-white kind of control in the sense that it has bolts and a little bit more kind of different removal package. But Yeah, I mean, Blue Moon, for those not familiar, it's really heavy on blue. It's all about having mana to both cast Blood Moon and Cryptic Command in the same game. <laughs> That's a tall order. Yeah, and the deck I was running had three Archmage's Charm, which is the triple blue counterspell from Modern Horizons. And that card was a house. But to answer your question, Dave, uh, I played against Burn, I played against Affinity, and Tron. I lost to all three of those, but I beat Wurza twice, and I beat Eldrazi Tron. So... It was fun, not my best performance, but uh, I don't know, a 3-3 average record. What more can you ask for? Interesting you didn't end up facing up against any Stoneforge Mystic decks. Not but, one. Um, you definitely got a slice of kind of the expected metagame there too. I don't think any of the decks that you faced were really a surprise. Totally agree, yeah. I guess Affinity was the closest one to being a surprise just because I don't think we've been talking about that deck very much lately, but... A go wide, fast, aggressive creature strategy seems pretty good, and Edge even Champion with seems like good right now, yeah, as champions, fantastic. I mean, it gets around all the targeted hate, gets around anger of the gods. Yeah, no, don't I don't talk about that. <laughs> nice. So even despite having like four pieces of artifact hate in my deck, in addition to a bunch of bolts and wraths and thing in the ice, I just found like affinity was a little bit too hard to manage based on you know, how quickly they went and how wide they were able to go and how how consistently they were able to cast Etch Champion specifically. Well, there's a glimpse into the meta game that we can all expect coming out of uh, Grand Prix Indianapolis. And I think that definitely good springboard for us to hop into our dive down discussion about Stoneforge Mystic and all of the different builds that are coming out of that. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, you're going to hear about the decks we played, as well as a little history about Stoneforge itself. Stay with us. Stoneforge Mystic, one in a white for a creature core artificer, meaning it'll only ever be on Zendikar. <laughs> a one-two that has the text, when Stoneforge Mystic enters the battlefield, you may search your library for an equipment card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. It has an added ability for one in a white and tap, you may put an equipment card from your hand onto the battlefield. And this was printed at Rare, but these days, I think this is a Mythic card. Uh, it's definitely a Mythic since it's worth 70 bucks right now, am I right, Wizards? <laughs> you got to prote yeah. protect that reprint equity, my friends. Yeah. I mean, as Mark Rosewater said, the issue with this card is that it both cheats something into play and tutors something up, which is not really <laughs> what Rares do. I saw, interestingly, when I was doing some research for this, um, Aaron Forsyth referred to this as a tinker effect which is what it is right it's basically a creature-based tinker it's it takes a couple of steps to do it but uh that that's what it does yeah no i totally agree that's interesting so let's talk a little history about stoneforge yeah absolutely 
So Stoneforge joins a pantheon of a select few cards that have been removed from the modern ban list in that they have been unbanned in modern. So Stoneforge, along with Jace the Mind Sculptor, were cards that were banned in standard way back in the day before modern was even a thing. So when modern was created, any cards that had been banned in standard were just added to the modern ban list. The idea was to keep any funky strategies out. So they are part of a deck called Cawblade, which was controlling mid-range, lots of removal counter spells, and then doing something like playing Squadron Hawk, which when you play it, you get other copies of Squadron Hawk from your deck into your hand. Then playing the Stoneforge Mystic, giving a sword to one of those up to three or four birds you know have in your hand, and just riding that bird to victory along with Jace, Plessing, and other removal counter spells. Doesn't seem very fun, very intense, not so fun. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to overstate how dominant Cobblade was in standard in its various builds. So I have two little tiny data stories to share with you as part of this story. The first is Pro Tour Paris in 2011, which was won by Ben Stark playing Cogo. There were three Blue White Stoneforge Mystic decks in the top eight of that Pro Tour, and their Stoneforge Mystic itself was in seven of the top eight decks in some quantity. <laughs> that seems like a lot. Yeah, but here's the thing that's crazy. Pro Tour Paris was before New Phyrexia, which means it was before Living uh, Living Weapon was a card. So there was no right. Batter Skull in the Pro Tour Paris 2011 list. So later, once New Phyrexia was printed, there was a Grand Prix that happened right before Stoneforge Mystic was banned. It was banned in uh, June of 2011. So the Grand Prix Singapore 2011, six of the top eight decks contained some combination of Stoneforge Mystic and Jace the Mind Sculptor. And this is probably one of the darkest times in Standard ever, as it turned out, because of the the power that these two cards put together. And it's not like they're inherently synergistic, and it really, in a lot of ways, they just are two separate plans that made it very hard for people to compete. Like Dave said, Batterskull wasn't the target initially. That was going to be the Sword of Feast and Famine, which we'll go into more detail later. But one of the effects is you get to untap your lands. So in a control deck, you get to swing in, deal damage, then hold open both counterspell and removal, which, as you can imagine, is very hard to deal with and also terrible when you're in the mirror and both players are doing exactly that same thing. Yeah, and there were a lot of Cobblade mirror matches going on at that at that point in time, for sure. This also led to one of the craziest rulings that I ever remember happening in Magic the Gathering. Oh, yeah. which was 10 days before Stoneforge Mystic was banned, there was a pre-constructed deck that came out for New Phyrexia called War of Attrition that had two Stoneforge Mystics in the pre-constructed deck. Two. Yeah, this is part of the series of what they're calling event decks, which are meant to be like a little more expensive, pretty tuned decks that were the meta, and you could buy one of these and either take it right to a Friday Night Magic or put a little bit of money into it and expect to do okay at your Friday Night Magic, which leads to the next point. Yeah, which is when they banned Stoneforge Mystic, they felt bad that they had just printed this product that people might have bought to play casually in their FNMs. So the ruling was, as long as you played War of Attrition exactly as it came out of the pre-constructed deck, you were allowed to play two <laughs> Stoneforge Mystics. The exact 75. As long as you are playing that 75... <laughs> It was fine for you to play with two banned cards. So one of those strangest exceptions in, in standard that's ever happened. I mean, kind of understand why they had to do it, but wild nonetheless. Do y'all recall how good that precon was after the banning happened? I assume it probably didn't do much. I don't remember people really playing it that much. I could be wrong. 
but yeah no it definitely there wasn't any consideration to competitive play with that ruling in mind i think it was definitely like i just spent 45 dollars on this what do you mean i can't use it the other thing we should keep in mind with this timing is that modern was actually introduced as a format at the same time that all this stuff was going on <laughs> big big year big year big year so <laughs> so like i said uh pro tour paris uh, was in 2011 i think it was in march don't quote me on that march or april modern was introduced in may of 2011 stoneforge mystic was banned in june of 2011 and then modern was officially sanctioned in august of 2011 and by that time jace was also banned in standard if i remember right and so of course when they made the initial banned list they were like we cannot have these two cards that are currently dominating standard be in this new format that we really want people to pay attention to and the card pool was much smaller in 2011 too right. there was only eight years of sets instead of the whole like 16 years that we have now so um totally makes sense how these cards ended up on the ban list in the first place i think if you look at it through that kind of lens but now now a new era has arisen and Stoneforge has burst onto the modern scene, and it's already beginning to make an immediate impact, as we've seen from all the tournament results we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. So we figured it's going to be a great time to take a closer look at this cool core, spelled with a KK, and how she has a place in the new world of modern, or new modern, as seemingly everyone else has started calling it. So for starters, guys, why do you think Stoneforge was okay to unban now? So, like we've talked about a lot on the past, what, is it, has it only been one episode since the banding, or has it been two? <laughs> I think it's been two. Okay. <laughs> Modern has, quote-unquote, slowed down, and that was definitely an intention of Wizard of the Coast. They wanted this format to go back to its turn four, turn five roots. So, Stoneforge Mystic, while a good card, is not a very fast card. So, best case scenario, you're turn two into turn three something, and that doesn't happen even all the time. But it is powerful. As we've seen from all the results and everything, it's an incredibly impactful card. So if you want to give mid-range or slower decks a really powerful tool and make them, you know, able to sustain in the long run, I think this is a card to do it with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to note, too, that past unbans have been pretty good so far, right? So Wild Nakatl, I mean, not even a blip. That was mostly banned because I think people were tired of playing against Naya back in the Alara block era. Yeah, I think it's given Zoo decks a fun tool, which is what Unbanned should do, right? Yeah. Like, Unbanned should pretty much be strictly giving ter- like tier two and three decks more tools to be more competitive. Yeah, and then Jace and Bloodbraid Elf, Unbanned, both of them have returned to being totally normal parts of the metagame, I think. I don't see anybody clamoring for Jace to go. Bitter Blossom has barely made any kind of splash, and again, that was residual kind of standard feels. I think it's the, the reason that that card ended up on the ban list in the first place. You know, it's not like they're going back and pulling off cards like, um, you know, any of the Mana Cheat cards or uh, what's the name Post. of... What's the cloud post? Yeah, exactly. Cloud post is back, baby. Yeah, just like <laughs> that. Or the uh, the shoal that that lets you like kill somebody on turn two, basically. Oh, blazing shoal. Yeah, blazing yeah. shoal. Like they're not doing any of that stuff. So that that was yeah, that was a combo in standard at the time where you could pitch uh, a, a incredibly high costed dragon from Mirrodin or Darksteel. It was something like twelve mana. Yeah, and then you could get turn one kills with Raging Goblin was the creature of choice at the time. Yeah, I mean that that was banned in a second wave of bannings actually because the first modern event was so degenerate with people mm-hmm. killing each other with Blazing Shoal and Infect. I think actually so. At any rate, that's another story for another time. And so I think that it's good to take a chance on something like Stoneforge ultimately 
And so far, it's felt pretty good. Now, I do have concerns. I think we'll talk about those later in the episode. But um, it seemed like a good time to do it just because Modern needed a little bit of a shakeup, I think, post-Faithful Sluting. I think it's worth noting that there was one bad unban in Golgari Grave Troll. Yeah. That was clearly not such a great call, and that's not a very fun thing that happened. I think people might argue Sword of the Meek over anything else. I think some people don't like that. And we talked about how we don't think it's it's not fun to play against and maybe not too broken. But I do think of all the unbans, there's one that was clearly a bad call and one that gets questioned, but all the rest are just totally fine. Also, my tiny nitpick pushback on saying now is a good time to put Stoneforge Mystic back into the format. I feel like the lack of reprint is a bug, not a feature. I agree. Interesting. You usually say the opposite phrase. Is your thing just I have to go? Oh yeah, you hate this. I, you know, don't you think that means Stoneforge is going to be in Thrones of Eldraine? We're gonna, no, no, I, know, I don't think they're going to put it in Thrones. If they do, that would be amazing. It would have been a great time to announce that before people yeah. were spending like hundreds of dollars on this stuff. What a big reveal to wait to that core existential drain until after all of this, and then someone reveals a bunch of white cards at the same time in their whole core. Yeah. It'd be pretty pretty fun. I don't think it's happening. I do think that there's probably a reprint <laughs> reprint imminent somehow of this card, but we'll we'll see where that goes. Modern Horizons two, baby. Horizon harder. <laughs> <laughs> Still Horizon in. Still. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about the cards that make up this hallowed Stoneforge package, because that's the thing that's really interesting about Stoneforge Mystic. I think is that it it's this discrete unit of cards that you can sort of plug into a whole bunch of different places. More like an absolute unit, if you ask me. <clears throat> yeah, absolute <laughs> unit. Right. So it's fair to say there are probably four artifacts that are considered to be agreed upon playable and part of the package. And you're running three of these. So the first one, which is not really discussed because it is probably the best artifact most of the time to grab a Stoneforge Mystic, we're talking Batterskull. So this is a five mana living weapon. And what that is, is it only is an equipment. So when you play the card, you create a zero zero creature that the equipment is attached to, a zero zero germ. My name at the beginning. So Batterskull, what it does is it gives plus four, plus four, Vigilance and Lifelink. So when you play it, it's not just sitting on the battlefield waiting to be equipped. You get a 4-4 Vigilance lifelink right away. So to equip is 5 mana, and it also has this added ability that seems pretty good. 3 mana, return Batter's Call to its owner's hand? That seems fun. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of like head faking that goes on with that activated ability on Batter Skull, right? And a lot of planning that goes into when you can bring it into play, when you what you have to think about what's in your opponent's hand. Do you have a way to cover it? Are you ready to activate it in response to removal? Like, there's definitely a whole sub game that goes on with that part of Batter, Batter Skull, and it's a huge part of what makes that card powerful. Absolutely. And you can do some ridiculous stuff like block a big creature, bounce it back, and then tap Stoneforge and put it back into play the same turn. So when you untap, you could just swing with it. It's a lot of mana. That's five mana we're talking about. But modern slow down is what I keep saying. I need you to back me up right now. Everyone hits all their land drops and then gets to keep their mana up. Listen, everybody just gets to hit their land drops. Well, I mean, there's certain decks that play Stoneforge that are pretty much around that whole conceit, right? I mean, blue-white control, if there's one thing that it wants to do, it's hit its land drop every turn. So there are some people who want to take advantage of the mana advantage that you can get from having an a powerful thing to do with it every turn. You know, Dave, I heard that on the dive down actually. Yeah, that's right. I mean, check it out. Uh, that episode is called my son is also named Teferi. 
Right, so Batter Skull, clearly very good. Yep. So the next equipment we're going to talk about is the Sword of Fire and Ice, which I think on paper looks like it's something that Dave and I should love because it's about blue stuff and red stuff. I love it. It draws cards. It says draw a card on it and bolt something. Amazing. <laughs> shocks. Excuse you. Sure, shocks. So all the swords are templated as a three mana equipment with two to equip. And what Sword of Fire and Ice does is it gives the equipped creature plus two plus two and protection from red and blue. That's also part of the templating for these swords is plus two plus two and protection from two colors. It also has the extra line of text that whenever an equipped creature deals combat damage to a player, fire and ice deals two damage to any target and you draw a card. Yeah, and for these swords, it'll be one effect from each of the colors represents. So for this one, the drawing the card is blue, the shocking is red. Likewise, all the swords have to connect to get their bonus perk. Yeah, and this is a wicked powerful equipment. I mean, all of the swords are kind of on their face extremely powerful because of the the amount of value that you get. Being able to give something plus two plus two double protection for that cost is huge in addition to the triggered abilities. So all the swords are just kind of fake cards in in some ways but other some rise to the top and when you start talking about things you want to get with stoneforge mystic you know sword of fire and ice it's one of an elite group of swords that um people are more, most interested in and i think is reasonably main deckable yeah because it provides value no matter what in certain plans right mm-hmm. now i think the thing that's key with the swords that um you know was pointed out i was listening to arena deck list last week i think that and brian gottlieb said this is you want to make sure you have the right sword for the deck that you are playing and i think that as we look at these swords and as you think about why different decks have different swords in them it's not arbitrary and it's not always just about the the protection abilities that they grant quite often it's about how does the plan of the triggered ability from the sword fit into the plan of what your deck is doing and you know, in some ways, the Sword of Fire and Ice is just the most generically powerful one. It mm-hmm. does a damn a removal spell, and it draws a card. That's pretty huge, and in most cases, it's just kind of raw card advantage. But there's other swords that have more specialized and in some ways more powerful abilities as well. The next most popular sword in these packages is the Sword of Feast and Famine. And this time, this sword gives protection from black and green. And then it has this wild damage trigger, which is the player you hit discards a card... And you untap all lands you control. Huh? All of them? Yeah, all of them. And so what this does is it lets you play a kind of reactive game where you get to use all your mana, attack, and then have all your mana up for instance to beat effects. Uh, Let's say like counter spells mostly or or maybe something else else potentially. But at any rate, that's kind of what people... um, you know, use this effect for is in decks that are going to be a little bit more reactive with the, the cards that they're playing. Stan, you can live in a world where you connect with Feast of Famine and then keep open mana for a cryptic command. How do you feel about that? Public wants to know. I am proud to be alive in this era. <laughs> I mean, not just cryptic command, get to flash in creatures as well. And there is <gasps> quite a few good flash creatures in the format that we will talk about today. I learned that's called a teaser. Yeah, more teasers. I uh, I do think that this one is interesting in that this is the one that tends to go in the control lists, mm-hmm. right? And so when I was playing the blue-white control deck, and we'll talk about it a little later, this is the, the sword that it had um, main deck. When I was playing the Bant Stoneforge list that I was playing, which had a lot more creatures, that one was playing the Sword of Fire and Ice. And I think there's some pretty like 
kind of interesting reasons for that being the case. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because when I was doing some Jeskai Sahili a couple weeks ago, I was running Fire and Ice in the main because I thought drawing cards toward my combo would be good. But in retrospect, I kind of wonder if Feast and Famine was the answer because it would have let me hold up uh, spell quellers or other instant speed interaction. Well, guess what? I got another sword that might have been good in that deck for you. Two swords? Wait, <laughs> one more. For the price of how many? Yeah, for the price of three. And I think. <gasps> Whoa, wait, wait. <laughs> wait, that's not a deal. Three <laughs> swords for the price of three. You know what? None of these swords are a deal right now, kids. <laughs> the market is spiked. Be careful. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the dive down. Be careful. That's our that's our financial segment for today. Be careful <laughs> of buying these cards, everybody. Um, the third sword that people tend to see in the packages the most often is the Sword of Light and Shadow. And this one gives protection from black and white. And its triggered effect is you gain three life and may return one target creature card from the graveyard to your hand. So it casts Raves dead. Yeah, no, this is pretty good. This is a sword that I have my experience with from playing EDH before I played a ton of Modern. And just a house there like the life gain the protection from the most common removal spells the getting your whatever you want from the graveyard back this sword is just absolutely unreal yeah and so i think in any deck where you want to get a specific creature back from the graveyard or you're pretty sure that there's gonna be creatures in your graveyard is the other thing that you need to be careful of and make sure it's mm-hmm. going to happen here um this sword starts to stand out as something that you want to have as your as your kind of main deck option because I mean, in the case of, for example, Jeskai Stoneblade with Sahili, wouldn't it be nice to be able to go back and get a Felidar Guardian if you lost it at some point for some reason? Or isn't it nice to go back and get a Snapcaster Mage if you know that you're going to have that available? I find if you lose things, it's really best to retrace your steps. So you got to think about the one the last time you had the Guardian is and go back and just find where that cat is. Well, you know, gentlemen, I had that thought and I put Light and Shadow in my sideboard. There you go. So Stan... Um, I ran Light and Shadow in my sideboard for my Green White Eldrazi build for this episode. And no joke, I found myself bringing in against Jund Mm -hmm. because they had the discard, and I thought if they wanted to take one of my Eldrazi, I got the ability to get it back later. They do have the removal for it, but uh, I mean... What, what are you going to do? Like, I, I think the the value you could generate if it sticks to the board and gets one hit in is unreal and just sets them back a little bit. Because their whole thing is the parity of their removal, and I feel like shifting that off balance would have been a tempo for me, and I did win that matchup, but I don't know if I would attribute it to the sword specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good against Jund for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, but also it gives your creatures protection from the removal in Jund's deck, or a lot of the removal in Jund's deck. So in some ways, that sword can serve as a lightning rod that, you know, if your creatures are important and need to stick around, then the likelihood of them sticking around are higher because it'll eat the removal spell that would have been reserved for that permanent in the first place. Yeah, I mean, gain three life, get a creature, and then your creature doesn't die. That seems okay to me. So... New swords on the block, baby. We got two swords popping up in Modern Horizons that I think are things to keep an eye on for the coming future for Stoneforge builds and to see where things go. So Sword of Sinew and Steel, we talked about in our preview episode, along with Sword and Truth and Justice. Quick recap for anybody who did not hear that episode or doesn't remember. Sword of Sinew and Steel gives plus two, plus two and protection from black and red. And when the equipped creature deals damage, You destroy up to one target Planeswalker and up to one target Artifact. For what it's worth, um, during our review episode, me, Dave, and Shane all gave it heaves in that we didn't think it was playable, and Stan was a believe in that one day it might be playable. 
Yeah, I'm really kicking myself. You know, when Modern Horizons came out, there were all these cool new cards to buy and so much money to spend. But I feel like this was the first clue that we were getting Stoneforge back, and it would have been a great time to spec on that card. Yeah, I mean, I don't think either either one of these swords is... I mean, when you look at their triggered abilities, they're much more niche than the other ones, and they feel a little bit less powerful. And so I think, I almost feel like these are designed to be sideboard cards. Mm-hmm. So... Quick thought, when we watched, when we saw this card originally, I said I thought this might be Colgon, but what if this is on Eldraine? Because it's kind of like fantasy-ish and not maybe Tarkirian. It's a little like iffy. I think Sinew and Steel and Truth and Justice might be on Eldraine. A little spec moment for you. Moving on. So I got excited about Sinew and Steel. We talked about that. But what about the blue and white one, you say? Well, that's Truth and Justice, baby. <laughs> plus two, plus two, protection from white and from blue. And when the equipped creature deals combat damage to a player, you put a 1-1 counter on a creature you control. Doesn't target for whatever reason, if that's important. And then you proliferate. And for those unfamiliar with this old keyword, when you proliferate, you choose any number of permanents and or players, and then give each another counter of each kind already there. So poison counters go up, 1-1 counters go up, charge counters go up, etc. Whatever has a counter, you can add one more to it. Yeah, I mean, the big one is, I think, for this particular sword is loyalty counters. Right. Yeah, which is like, hey, if I'm in a deck with a whole bunch of planeswalkers along with my Stoneforge Mystic, maybe I'm going to play this card. Now, I don't think anybody's playing this card, but at any rate, <laughs> no. it's, it's there and available. And to piggyback off what Dave is literally saying right now, all of us gave this a quad heave. Yeah. So no one liked this card. No one thought it would be good. But swords become different when you have Stoneforge Mystic. So when you're casting these for three and paying two to equip them, it's a different game. But when you are more consistently able to grab them from your deck via the tutoring and get them into play for one mana cheaper via Stoneforge's activated ability, these cards are a little different. So living in the world we live in now, where Stoneforge Mystic is legal, what do you two think about the capability of these cards in today's modern meta? I mean, I will just bring back what I was saying a moment ago, which is I feel like these are both specific tools for specific purposes and so they're good in certain matchups and so i think that sort of sinew and steel is kind of good in the mirror match against a stoneforge mystic deck which is why i think it's really interesting that it gives protection from black and red because i think that sort of widens the scope of decks you can play it against if you wanted to Mm -hmm. so the protection abilities are good against stuff like jund a lot of removal abilities i think whereas the activated abilities i think are pretty good against decks that are blue white (laughs) essentially where they're gonna have batter skull on the board and gonna have a planeswalker and so i feel like this is maybe sort of a mirror breaker kind of card uh not sure if it's good enough to actually fill that role but i looking at it now i think that that was sort of designed with that in mind sort of truth and justice i think is just very niche and so i i'm not sure where that card goes i'm with you dave my opinion on truth and justice basically hasn't changed and there's been a lot more conversation regarding Sinew and Steel since Stoneforge wasn't banned, and I'm just like not even hearing that conversation for Truth and Justice. Yeah. But likewise, while I had the most optimistic opinion of Sinew and Steel when we did our set review, my opinion has cooled down a little bit, primarily out of concern that Sinew and Steel may have a hard time connecting in the matchups where it's most relevant. So if you're like bringing it in to deal with Planeswalkers and Jund, like... Tarmogoyf laughs at your sword. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I think this gets to a really interesting point about the swords in general, Stan, too, is that the way that these are templated, I think they're designed that the protection abilities are supposed to help you make sure that you connect with hitting your opponent, right? Mm -hmm. But none of them really play out that way in practice. And so when you're putting together a Stoneforge Mystic deck, I think you have to really think about how much do you need to hit with the swords and do you have creatures that can carry it in a way that get those triggered abilities? So I want to add a caveat to my position and kind of support what you're saying, Dave, which is Giver of Runes is a game changer. And after playing a Stoneforge deck with Giver of Runes, and without, that card's power level elevated dramatically, and I think it makes the swords even more relevant and interesting. Fascinating. For what it's worth, I found the pro green from Feast and Famine to be quite good. And I found that a lot of the time, green creatures were the ones getting in my way or preventing me from making the profitable swings I wanted to. So maybe, not maybe, that's definitely because of the way the meta is right now and the unique mixture of decks we have. But I think it's worth noting that uh, if you think there's going to be a lot of black creatures, red creatures, blue creatures, white creatures, to keep an eye on these swords and that they might serve you well in their niche focus. So I have a question before we kind of move on from this point too, which is how often... So basically all the decks that I played had one sword main, one sword side, and batter skull main. Did you have experience playing packages that had more equipment than that or was that kind of how it felt to you i was on two swords and a batter skull main with one sword side i was a little bit of greedyboy.com we can say that but i don't regret it quite frankly drawing swords naturally is not bad right like no, it doesn't feel not. like it ever is no and like it's it's i feel like previously it'd be bad because it's oh i have to figure this out and here it's just like maybe you even have a stone forge in your hand and right. you can have to put it in. Or you have a deck that's usually a little more grindy in mid-range, so you can take a turn where you play that and then wait to equip it to a different turn. I think it's interesting that the number of tutor targets is so small. It's just something right. to keep in mind. It's not like this is a deck filled with equipment or any of these Stoneforge decks are filled with equipment. It's six or seven cards that you can kind of discreetly put into a shell that either Stoneforge is the, the feature of it or it's the kind of b story within it but it's always about that many cards and so that's why there's so many different places that it's showing up yeah dave your point about there being just a small pool of really good cards to draw from for equipment i think is really salient and i think something about that is something that wizards and you know mark rosewater and gavin and other designers have mentioned in that it's really difficult to design really pushed or good equipment because it's often colorless so in standard you can put it in whatever deck you want and standard, like we mentioned with the Cobblade thing, kind of dilutes down to who draws their sword first, who's able to utilize it best, game over. So I think they're moving more towards, especially with the recent spoilers, we've seen uh, equipment with color of the mana cost, with uh, bonuses for having certain tribal strategies, etc. So I think we're moving away from just, oh, hey, that's another sword. And I think in future Modern Horizon sets or other sets like that, there might be another sword. But I think things coming from standard, it's going to be a slim pickings just because of the restrictive nature of it. All the sword talk is making me hungry. I want to hear about these decks you've been playing. Let's start with our Sleep, Believe, Heave. And Dave, I'm, I'm inviting you to kick us off because you tested Blue-White, which is on a lot of people's mind, the first place Stoneforge was expected to go yeah i think we kind of have to do start with the elephant in the room you know 
I think immediately people, now that Jace the Mind Sculptor has been freed for about a year and a half or whatever, and Stoneforge Mystic is now joining Jace in, in the modern uh, card pool, people are immediately looking at how do we build the port of that super degenerate standard deck and bringing it over into modern. I mean, I think it's it's interesting because it's a blue-white control deck, right? And blue-white control, like we talked about in our blue-white control episode, is kind of the deck that everybody loves to hate but also secretly loves to love. There's tons of people who really want blue-white to be good. There's tons of people who really want to be good with blue-white. I count myself among that list of people. Is, is that a Venn diagram or is that a circle? Uh, I think it's very, very close to a circle. You're right. And it's it's hard, right? It. I think that this is another one of those moments where when this card was unbanned and for months beforehand, people were saying this card should be unbanned because it's not broken. And uh, everybody immediately said, well, this is a huge bolster to blue-white control as far as giving it a proactive package that it can use to kind of get a win con out on the board immediately. This card's not good enough. It's not going to do anything. Why run it? Also, everyone, this card is broken blue-white wide open. Yeah, totally agreed. And, you know, if you look at different players even, you know, Shaheen Sarani, who's a super well-known blue-white player in a recent uh, Star City Games article, said, the biggest winner in this unbanned announcement is Team Control. Graveyard decks (laughs) were never easy for us to tangle with, and the lack of a powerful early game threat has caused Control to remain Tier 1.5 in the recent era. The gradual increase has been heartwarming from a tier three pile before Jace to tier two with it, and now tier 1.5 with War of the Spark Planeswalkers, and now tier one with Stoneforge Mystic. So this is someone who's been a true believer, right? Shaheen Sarani. I'm not sure if I agree with his assessment of, you know, kind of where the deck ended up, each one of those kind of waypoints. But I think what he's saying is he's getting the deck that he wants to play, and he's an expert at playing it. So he's super excited now to have the full deck together in, in Modern. On the other hand, you have people like Brian Bronduin who say, I would never willingly put Celestial Colonnade into my modern deck. Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm deranged? I have some modicum of self-respect. This is from a recent uh, t- a TCG player article. Give me some credit. I have a reputation uphold, and I can't ruin my credibility by thinking it would be smart to sleeve up blue-white. I mean, look, it's a polar, it's a polarizing thing. People constantly talk about how good it is, how bad it is. I think the thing that's really interesting about... Stoneforge Mystic is that it it made it in my playing of the deck, you know, which was essentially a blue stock blue white control deck swapping in um, Stoneforge Mystic. The thing that really hurt me from the last iteration of blue white to this one was what the deck gave up to play Stoneforge Mystic, which is essentially it gave up playing Narset, uh, part of Veils. It gives up playing quite as many. Teferi's like it doesn't play big Teferi right now. It gives up search for Iskanta. So it kind of gives up its raw card draw engines. Well, Narset was more than just a card draw engine too, right? right? It was a response to all the cantripping happening in the meta, not only with opt serum visions, but also with faithless looting. Yeah. And that's totally true. I mean, it's interesting to see that card fall out of prominence so quickly just with faithless being gone. I mean, there's still a lot of people drawing a lot of extra cards you know what I mean? So, but maybe maybe something like Ashiok is a little better because it keeps you from searching with Stoneforge Mystic, and that's more of a sideboard card. 
that kind of stuff at, at any rate. But it was kind of sad to see that package go, which I actually felt at a certain point in time that Narset was just better than Search for His Content because it just, her activated ability was Search. And you got to use it right away, got to use it a couple of times, and then you had this kind of powerful piece of disruption there that kept people from drawing extra cards. I think it's kind of interesting. It also gave up a little bit of room for running Wraths. Like a lot of the the blue-white Stoneblade decks run maybe just two Wraths, where there used to be three, or sometimes they run one Wrath, which is kind of a surprise as well. So it gives up a little bit of its resilience against kind of like wide creature strategies in exchange for having a proactive early game plan to try to apply pressure. The thing that was really hard for me, though, is like, why do I want my blue-white control deck to be... have a threat that applies early pressure. And I felt like what happened a lot of time was I would just run it out there. Now, maybe I'm playing it wrong. I didn't get to play a huge sample of of decks. And of course, you know, blue-white is super hard to play. I've always wanted to be good at playing it. I'm not good at playing it. Um, I was dabbling around with it during Hogak Modern, thinking that might be pretty good. It was very medium. Um, but running Stoneforge Mystic out in this deck, like you can often protect it, but it often felt like, why am I giving my opponents active targets for their creature removal, where in previous iterations of Blue White Control, those cards were dead in their hand. And then you can get into the kind of fun sideboard plan where you're kind of like, am I going to bring in Monastery Mentor? Am I not going to bring in Monastery Mentor? Are you going to take out your creature removal? Are you going to leave it in? So there's this kind of like leveling that goes on where you try to make certain portions of your opponent's deck worthless. And that just helps you when you're Blue White Control, because what you're trying to do is win via card advantage, really. And now there's this whole other plan in there. Yeah, Dave, I totally see what you're saying and agree. Monastery Mentor is one of those cards out of control where typically you won't bring in board sweepers versus control and then they punish you by bringing in monster mentor i think control is one of those decks where obviously a pilot skill matters greatly but i feel like it matters more intensely for control i.e the pilot skill transfers more directly to results especially when you can make these sort of like not pump fake decisions but you can like level two or three somebody by doing that like okay i think they're gonna bring in you know monastery mentors i'm gonna bring in my anger of the gods and then you don't bring it in and they have an anger of the gods they're gonna get a one for one with and that's not a good use for a sideboard card yeah totally agree also i for one always breathe a sigh of relief when my opponent removes my stoneforge mystic because it is always i'm serious no i know it's it's funny i I think that's one of the things that makes the card good is that it's such a magnet because it's already replaced itself right the equipment on the battlefield is great because then you get to equip it to something else later and this one less card in my opponent's hand yeah i mean i think it's one thing that's really awkward about this deck too is that you know the main payoffs are the swords but there's really only nine targets to equip to in the blue-white control deck. It's like, am I going to equip a sword to Stoneforge Mystic? Am I going to equip it to Snapcaster Mage? Or am I going to equip it to my one Vendillion click that I have? I mean, you're not going to often equip your sword to a Celestial Colonnade, let's say, because, you know, it's a lot a lot of mana to do that. But, it's a um, lot of mana. Yeah, it is. It's like seven to do that, and then it falls off, and so you have to do it again the next turn. So it's just, it's just kind of a lot to make that happen. Stan, I was often happy when Stoneforge Mystic was killed. Not for the same reason you were, but I was happy to no longer have to make tough decisions with her or worry about mana usage. It was nice to have that taken off my brain, which is why I left. Mm. I, I knew it'd be for a different reason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is one of the most interesting things about playing with and against Stoneforge Mystic is the kind of game of chicken that goes on with, how am I going to get this artifact out of their hand? 
When am I going to get them to play it? When do I have the mana open to be able to leave up a protection spell for Stoneforge Mystic and also the the artifact that I'm about to put into play? So I just think there is a lot kind of there, and that's a lot of the nuance of playing this package in general and specifically in this deck because you really have to get these cards to be the threats that win the game for you once you've adopted this into blue-white control. So moving on from our kind of overview of Blue-White Stoneblade to our rating system, and if you haven't heard our rating system before, we use a scale that's called Sleeve, Believe, Heave. And Sleeve means I think everybody should play this, or it's a powerful deck that will of course be played. Believe means I can see how this works, but I don't think it's quite there yet. And Heave means throw it out the window. I don't, I'm not a believer in this at all. Right in the trash. So I think personally, this isn't the type of deck that I want to play and while i think you know to go to the the rating here of sleeve believe heave for blue eye control i mean it's the most popular stoneforge mystic deck and while i don't think i'm going to be in a hurry to pick it back up i think it's obviously a sleeve it's getting a lot of results there's a lot of players who are excited to play this deck there's a lot of players who have spent years previously playing decks like this and are ready to come back to it i just think that the thing that's the most interesting about this is that i don't think that this is a deck that makes someone who doesn't already play blue-white control need to run out and pick up blue-white control. Mm. That's kind of the the bottom line for me when I read it is it's a good way for people who already play control to get better, but I don't think it makes the deck any easier to play for anybody. I think, in fact, it makes it quite a bit harder at the same time that it makes it more powerful. I'm a little surprised to hear you say that you think it makes the deck harder to play because i think it's in line with the draw go spirit of blue white when you cast a turn to stoneforge untap if the stoneforge is still out there and let's say you have a third mana out like in theory your hand should have either a removal spell a counter spell or you always get to threaten activation so because blue white operates so often either in response or at the opponent's end step like I don't know. I haven't played this deck yet. I will give it a try, but it seems to me like it's kind of in line with a lot of the experiences we've had playing blue-white historically. Yeah, I mean, I think that part is in line. That interaction is definitely in line, but if you think about what what I said was it makes it harder to play, and what this does is provide a whole new tree of options that someone has to think about when they're evaluating what mana to use, what to leave open, and things like that. And so I think, you know, given, given some of the discussion earlier, like, I think that actually adds the complexity of the deck. I'm not saying it makes it less powerful or anything like that. I think it makes it more powerful. I just think it makes it more niche to play in this shell. You said sleeve, but what I heard was sleeve only if you have blue-white control already sleeved up, and then you can sleeve this into blue-white control. I think this is sleeve if you're a magic pro who loves to play blue-white control. (laughs) So to you, our three listeners who are certified (laughs) magic pros... If you are Shaheen Sarani or Gregory Orange or somebody who knows what they're doing. No, I mean, I think if you love to play Blue Eye Control and it's all that you do, like this made your deck better. But it didn't make it easier for anybody to pick up, or I don't think there's more incentive for people to pick this deck up now personally. it's You still need the the same skills that you had before, and in fact, you might need to have even more skills than you had before to be able to handle this. So for my list, as we mentioned, I ran the green-white Stoneblade Eldrazi deck. Not that dissimilar from the one Allie Warfield was uh, wielding, I guess you could say. I wish I had seen her list before I'd done this. I like hers a little more, but that's neither here nor there. So I played four leagues over the weekend with this deck. So I have 20 20 best of three games. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. 
if you think the deck is really good and I didn't see that, that speaks more to me as a player than probably the deck's quality. But that being said, I have some USDA certified fresh hot takes for y'all. <laughs> I was going to say you're already giving away your rating, I feel like, but let's let's hear it. <laughs> so this deck is slow in a way that I keep bringing it up, but Scred is slow. This deck felt very scruddy to me. You're running mana rocks. You're running two mana rocks. You're taking your turn two off sometimes to go, I'm doing this to have a really good turn three. Please don't kill me. So, and maybe slow isn't exactly right. It's a little inconsistent. So there are times where you can have your turn two thought knot, turn three reality smasher. Those are real hands. But sometimes you don't have the green mana you need to cast an ancient stirrings or a noble hierarch early. And that can be pretty bad. So for me, I felt the deck was clunky in the way that it feels like it's still being figured out or solved. So I think all these individual parts, I think the Karn package it includes, I think the Eldrazi package it includes, and I think the Stoneforge Mystic package it includes are all individually powerful packages. I have been on record multiple times as a big Karn package fan. But I feel like they don't intermesh in a way I would like them to, or maybe I didn't see the synergies, or maybe they aren't supposed to mesh, and that was an issue on my part. But I feel like the deck didn't have interaction versus Titan, versus Combo, and people talked about how Modern slowed down, and I agreed, but I feel like this deck was even slower than Modern a little bit. And I really did miss the older removal that deck like Scred has, because you have Path to Exile and Dismember sometimes in the main, but mostly just Path to Exile with Dismember on the side. So I found myself often having threats that I couldn't deal with. And I'd have a sword out, I'd have protection from them, or I'd have a batter skull, but it wasn't enough, and they were able to lay on the beats. So for Stoneforge herself, really liked her. Really, really powerful. I At first, I did not value the equipment correctly, and I would grab a sword where it was probably just correct to grab a batter skull, and I feel like that was a learning curve for me. And once again, I liked the Karn package, but here it felt a little slow, and I didn't feel like I was properly utilizing it. When I play it in prison, it is a different game because you're go- going to a prison, the Karn target's a little more obvious because usually it's solving a puzzle, and what puzzle piece solves the puzzle. And for Eldrazitron, you have a lot of mana. So your options are a little more open because you go, look at my sideboard. Okay, that, 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 which is better here? Here, often Karn sort of felt like I was against the fence and Karn wasn't what I needed to solve the puzzle. Yeah, it's pretty hard to, uh, I feel like in a list like this, be sure that you're going to be able to cast Mycosynth Lattice when you want exactly. to, for example. And there are plenty of times where I could minus Karn and grab it, but they had creatures out. So I would have the lockdown, quote unquote, but the whole thing is creatures get through the lock. So Karn would just die next turn. So once again, this isn't a judgment of the power level of the deck. This deck, I thought, would be a fun mid-range deck, including some of my strategies, and it was so difficult to play. So very difficult. No joke, I played a couple games where I was well getting hands before I realized that uh, turn one Cavender Souls, you can just name human to play Noble Hierarch. You don't need a color land to do so. And like stuff like that, where it's a lot of decisions in this deck are like that, where you need to sort of not throw up best practices, but only take a page from that book and then think about what your deck is trying to do and what line you can go down. We talked about how Andrazi Tron, it was kind of similar where the deck had different strategies and you kind of had to figure it out right away. I feel like this deck is that to a very high extreme. When you're playing this deck, you need to figure out what is my quickest best play I can do that's going to lead to a consistent, good early board state and how am I going to do that? Because if you go, okay, high arc and then maybe a turn three thought not, not good. You need to be a little more committed or feel a little bit better about the play than that. And I feel like 
once again, with Scred, you have a consistent, okay, I'm removal into Walker and to hopefully win. This deck has a bunch of different game plans and you can't stick with sort of heuristics in that way. So Zach, it looks to me like one of the potential ceilings of your deck is that you could line up a turn two reality smasher. Did you ever pull that off? How would you do that? Turn one. Oh, I guess you can't because you can't turn one land hierarch. Exactly. And oh. you can't do turn two TKS. But you can't, yeah, but Stan, that's a great point where you say, oh, great, I have this mana dork, but in order to cast the mana dork, you can't tell a Drowsy Temple. Yeah. So, th- like I said, th- this deck has these moments like that where you think, oh, I have this great play, but the mana dork's a little bit at odds with the Eldrazi plan, but also it does help ramp into things like Thought Not or Red Alley Smasher. But it, it just feels like I didn't properly utilize the parts of the deck. And I think there is some real gold here, obviously, as we see once again from Allie Warfield's finish. So two weeks in a row. I mean, she almost top aided the the SCG open as well with a very similar deck. And apparently she's just a lot better than me. Who knew magic pro is better than me. Admitted casual spike. So anyway, how do I feel about the deck? If you're thinking heave, you're wrong. (laughs) There's clearly a lot of raw power here. I I repeated that. I think the deck maybe needs some more tuning. Maybe is one of those things where it's similar to Jund where there's a list that you like and there are these spots where you can swap it out with things. For example, I would have loved a Knight of Autumn main board. There are a lot of times where the game got a little grindy and being able to flicker it with a Drowsy Displacer would have been very, very good. So I am a believe on this deck. I wouldn't sleeve it quite yet. I think it has quite a, a bit of growth to do and maybe that's honestly changing three cards and everybody agrees those are the three cards that were not pulling their weight. But I think this deck is going to be one of the final stone fortress decks that shake out in the end i mean one thing that's really interesting to me about this build is that there's no like huge mana sinks for sort of feast and famine yeah sort of it doesn't really play at instant speed you know i mean i guess you can eldrazi displacer some stuff uh if you wanted to like get your stoneforge mystic again or if you want to do thought not seer or something like that I, I guess Karn can do a little bit of that role of being a being a mana sink for sort of feast and famine. Yeah, um, my, my greatest play was to play a Karn. I was tapped out. Swing, untap, minus the Karn, play a bridge. Yeah. So you do get to do things like that, but I think the deck still has some ways to figure out how to best utilize the value it has, like you were just saying. One of the reasons why I agree that this deck may have potential for being a home for Stoneforge is because... Again, Reality Smasher is such a great creature to put a sword on because you're oh, yeah, just is. about guaranteed to connect as long as like they don't remove it with two spells, which is also fine. Mm-hmm. And you get to keep the sword, so, you know. Right, and so you get to swing with your 5-5, five, five, but it's a 7-7, seven, seven, and then you have Noble Hierarch, so you have an 8-8 eight, eight swinging actually sometimes. Feels pretty good. Interesting. So, believe, I think this deck is going to get there 100%, but I wouldn't sleeve it quite yet. So, Zach, I know you've been really warming up to Eldrazi Tron ever since we dived into that deck. I, mean, I guess you could say dove into. I'm curious whether this is the type of strategy that you would even like want to tweak with. Like, If you see the potential and I don't know how interested you are as a player outside of the dive down in the Stoneforge package, Like, is this something that has enough potential that you think you want to be a part of its evolution? Personally, not really. Um, I think mid-range is fun, but something that we learned, that I learned in the Jund episode, is that mid-range isn't mid-range isn't mid-range. All these decks are separate and distinct, and the skills don't transfer over one for one. So I think I'm pretty good at Scred. I talk about it all the time. But being good at Scred doesn't make you good at Jund, and being good at Scred doesn't make you good at this deck. 
So I think it's a cool deck. I think it's fun. I just don't have enough of the cards to feel like it's worth investing time. Because I feel like this is a deck that really rewards constant play, like learning good play patterns, learning when to grab a sword here and there, etc. So I think it's cool. I think it's fun. But I think to get good with the, with a deck like this takes quite a bit of time and commitment. And I would rather spend that getting good at prison. All right. So I'll go next, if I may, if you'll allow it. My co-host just leaned back. <laughs> I'm going to take a break. <sighs> All right, listeners, join me while I take you down the American path with the classic red, white, and blue deck. I played Jeskai Tempo Forge. An audio experience. This is a name that we on the Dive Down coined. We would love if more of you used it. <laughs> I'm going to make a button for it. We're sending it out soon. Coming out on Shane's Tempo Forge. So I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit more. I kind of uh, procrastinated on preparation for this episode because I was trying to prepare for uh, the GP. And as a result, I didn't really get a chance to test a Stoneforge deck until after we got the GP results back. And then I basically just looked at like the GP list that looked most appealing to me and Just Guy stood out and it was on the winning, winning team's deck. So it seemed like a really great choice, not only for this episode, but for me personally, because I've played Just Guy Tempo decks in the past. I love Lightning Bolt decks backed with some counter spells. And this was like a really obvious fit so yeah i'm stoked about this deck too by the way yeah so all credit goes to joseph karani in developing this list and my initial feelings is that like basically i think jeskai is back um something i had mentioned to my co-host prior to recording is that when modern horizons came out it gave all these new tools to jund that it felt like jund kind of emerged after being on the downswing for a number of months and Jeskai used to be a tier one deck. Like Jeskai Control used to be in top eights. It was winning tournaments. And then as Jace the Mind Sculptor and Teferi and Field of Ruin emerged, I think blue-white control kind of started to fill the same slot and maybe even perform better than Jeskai Control did in the hands of similar players. And now this deck has like a slightly different strategy that's both proactive and I think in line with the format itself. So the new tools that Jeskai gets, in addition to Stoneforge Mystic, that I think make it more competitive than it's been in a while, are Giver of Ruins, Teferi Time Reveler, aka the Time Cop, and Force of Negation. The deck also has access to great white sideboard pieces, which I think is important. Stony Silence and Rest in Peace are still relevant, as well as being able to side into a control plan with either more narrow answer removal spells, counter spells, or even like Planeswalkers like Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, give it, I think, play against a nice range of other strategies. And looking at how this deck played out, what I really loved about this particular list was the curve. Um, Giver of Ruins was an amazing turn one play. And one of the things that I really appreciated about Joseph's configuration was that there were no serum visions, which made Giver of Ruins in hand, on in my opening hand, like a pretty easy no-brainer, especially if I'm like on the play in the blind. Alternatively, it does have Bolt, Path, and Opt, so I could even hold up some turn one interaction if i need to 
The deck can even run like Spell Snare and Spell Pierce, and with all the two drops, including Stoneforge Mystic, like Spell Snare feels like a great counterspell to have access to, especially if you're on the draw in the blind with no other one mana spells to cast. I think the deck basically needs to run for Stoneforge Mystic since it's such a great two drop and like a great two mana spell to curve into, especially if you do have a turn one Giver of Ruins. And then the three mana slot is where things get super interesting because you have some options to hold up interaction, whether it's your bolts and path to exiles, etc. It also has Spell Queller in this slot. Yes. Likewise, if you have Stoneforge Mystic out, as well as a bunch of responsive spells in your hand, this is what I was referring to with Dave's deck dive, like you get to just play chicken with the opponent. And if they pass the turn and you have three mana up and Stoneforge on the on the board, you get to just bring in a sword because you didn't have to use any of your other spells on any of their spells. I also want to mention that this deck runs Geist of St. Traft, which I haven't seen in modern in a long time. And I'm so happy to have it back because it was like a perfect threat for a strategy with both Giver of Ruins and Swords. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Last week, we saw some tournament results with the first wave of Stoneforge decks running Geist. And I would just love for this card to be modern playable. Like we said, it's not that hard to remove in the end. There's plenty of sweepers in modern. There's plenty of ways to get around it. But it still is a good, solid threat that you have to respect. So I think this is totally the kind of creature that modern's all about. Yeah, and for a long time, one of the weaknesses I had with Geist was that a 2-2 just doesn't survive combat a lot. Right, exactly. So you swing, you get for 6 damage, maybe 4 with the angel, and then they're dead. So you feel like, is this better as a burden spell? Yeah, there would be some games where it would be 3 mana to to deal 4 damage, or 3 mana to do nothing. And I think Mm -hmm. either giving it protection from the giver, or just equipping a sword to it, makes it survive combat a lot more often, and that three mana will sometimes convert to four, eight, 12 damage. I also gotta say, Teferi Time Cop plus Spell Queller is such an insane interaction. Oh, yeah. I almost feel like the Stoneforge package should be four Stoneforge, two Swords, one Batter Skull, three Teferis, four Spell, spell Quellers. <laughs> like, you just shouldn't. <clears throat> so I, if we get... if. I also played Bant, which has which has the same package in it, and so that's why I am also a fan. So I want to talk about this interaction very quickly because it feels practically broken, um, and it's one of the things that I think helps highlight why the graveyard had become so problematic and busted and why Faithless Looting probably had to go. Because when a combo as dirty and strong as Teferi plus Spell Queller was barely seeing play and practically non-existent at like the highest levels of competitive modern. I think to me, that's almost an indicator that the power level of the format had sort of gotten out of control. Sure. So I also got to say, I like that the deck can play around Blood Moon, even in game one, because it doesn't have any spells with double color casting cost. So with enough fetches, you get to just get one of each basic and you're pretty much solid. And I also personally love that the deck gets to run for lightning bolts. I will say this is one thing that concerned me about this deck list was the fact that it only runs one of each basic, mm-hmm. which means that uh, with Field of Ruin, you know, if you get strip mined out, it'll be you'll run out of fetch targets eventually. And also Ghost Quarter, if that is a deck that you're playing against, boy, you gotta really keep an eye out for people just uh, abusing you via that too. So yeah. something else to keep in mind. We've seen a rise in 
Texas decks in general, especially featuring Stoneforge Mystic. So Legion and Orbiter is becoming more of a thing. Ghost Quarter, Field of Ruin, like Dave mentioned. So I think something to keep in mind, especially for people who are brewing or interested in that sort of stuff, that you can run just one and one, but it's something to keep in mind that you might get blown out because of it. Some of the things that I didn't like about this deck, I couldn't identify any free win matchups or crazy <laughs> fast win scenarios. <laughs> what I didn't like. I just couldn't win for free sometimes. Well, I don't think that that's the bar that all modern decks have to operate under, but I think that's really helpful when you have those matches that you don't have to grind. And this is a mid-range deck, and you have to grind no matter what. So like, even if you're sending all the bolts to the face and you get a turn two stoneforge and a turn three batter skull like it's still going to take like five to seven turns to actually close out the game i also felt like the board state can be pretty narrow um something i've been harping on a lot lately is that modern feels like a protect the queen format giver of ruins to fairy and force of negation all help with that but you know if your opponent has a very well-timed removal spell and they get rid of like your one good threat that can be a pretty realistic setback And likewise, three-color decks so often have mana problems and can be vulnerable to blood moons or taxing effects that I think playing Jeskai is a liability for some situations. Not to mention all the main deck artifact hate that's floating around the format makes the Stoneforge plan a bit more vulnerable. So one of the things I want to do is compare it to some of the previous Jeskai Temple list. Um, Jeff Hoogland, popular streamer, has been playing it even as recently as this year. And I feel like this version is kind of a rebuilt from the ground up look at the deck since Geist are now stronger than ever. Geist of St. Trath, thanks to Giver of Ruins and the Swords. Um, also, in the past, Jeskai Tempo would play Dovin's Veto and Spreading Seas as well as like more cantrips. But I don't know if Spreading Seas is particularly impactful at this moment. And Veto feels pretty outclassed by Force of Negation in a lot of situations. But at the same time, Stoneforge Mystic always founds a sword, so you're not necessarily cantripping for threats as often as Jeskai Tempo used to. Also, previous Jeskai Tempo lists ran Vandillion Click, but I think Vandillion Clicks and X1s in general are at a higher liability because of Renin 6. So being able to lean onto an X3-like Spellqueller, I think, is something that is pretty strong, and Geist being able to dodge Renin 6's ability is pretty important too. In general, playing it, super fun, though it is quite mid-rangey. And what I liked about it is because it has a very proactive, even aggressive strategy, you get to set the pace of the game by providing all these must-answer threats that if the opponent can respond, you're either running away with it or you have great answers that you can either play at instant speed or with force of negation you can tap out for. The caveat here is that uh, the deck has eight main deck bolt effects so you know if it runs love it and that's assuming it's running a playset of lightning helix but you have to find seven of these cards to potentially win through the burn plan um i don't think that's super realistic and these days i find that a lot of these spells are just acting as extra copies of path to exile this deck really helps illuminate for me why giver of ruins is so strong when all of your threats are must answer permanence not only does she serve as an early right lightning rod to eat a removal spell, but it often will force your opponent to spend two removal spells to deal with the threat later. I also want to say, like, the addition of Giver of Ruins as well as Stoneforge Mystics makes me feel like white is no longer the worst color in modern, which is something I think people have been talking about for years. And 
I'm having a hard time seeing the argument for that, including Teferi in that mix. Okay. Um, so on the count of three, we're all going to name what we think the new worst color is, okay? One, two, three. Black. White. White. Oh, what? <laughs> I didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, it, it's, it's a hard. It's I, not red. Don't no, say red. It's definitely not red, but I think it's a little hard to identify right now because the format is in such upheaval and there's so much being figured out. But like white has so many strong cards now that I feel like Dave would have to back up his position today. Yeah, Dave, back it up. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, have you never cast a mana tithe? I have never cast a Mana Tithe, actually, but maybe someday. So one of the other issues I have with this deck is that I don't think it's good against Tron still. Like, that's something Jeskai has always struggled against. Um, and, like, control decks in general, Tron will sometimes go over it. I do like that Giver of Runes gives protection from colorless abilities. Kind of useful. Like, it'll protect you from a Karn. I mean, it protects you from Eldrazi. And Eldrazi, like, too. Yeah, yeah Thought Nazir, which is kind of nice. I also have the feeling that it's got a pretty narrow window to beat Wurza, though I never had to ch- the chance to experiment with that matchup. But a couple well-timed spell quellers plus spell snare, um, as well as all like the sideboard counter spells, graveyard hate, and artifact hate provides the Jeskai list with a bunch of tools in that matchup. Um, and as far as like the top decks in the format go right now, I actually think this strategy has a pretty decent matchup against Burn. Thanks not only to the cheap interaction, but having the four lightning helix and a lot of painless fast lands. So you're not giving burn as much free damage. So if it's not obvious, I'm a total sleeve on Jeskai Stoneforge. The deck is really fun. It offers a lot of interactions and decision making as well as a proactive strategy. So in my opinion, Joseph Joseph's list is pretty beautifully built um and i think it's got a very clear plan that works in synergy with pretty much everything else in the deck and it also feels like a great home for stoneforge because not only does she fit in nicely with all the protective spells that you have in the form of teferi and giver and force of negation it just lets you have like a very proactive plan in the early game that either your opponent can deal with or you'll run away with it so it's well positioned in the format it's really fun. Gets to use cool new cards that are annoying to play against. What's not to love? Absolutely. So I want to talk about another another Stoneforge deck, and actually one that had more day twos at GP Indie than Jeskai did, and was just shy of UW for the number of finishes that it had in day two. And that's the Bant list that we mentioned a little bit earlier. Now this is this is a list that I've played around with a little bit. I want to give a really top level kind of overview of it because i think it does play a little bit like the jeskai list in a sense that it relies a lot on blue white flash elements specifically spell queller in order to put together kind of like a really disruptive plan that can also be some threats so basically in this in this list what you're doing is playing cards with really powerful enter the battlefield effects or flash or both Right, so this this build has twenty one creatures, which I think is more than any of the other lists have that we've talked about so far. Uh, the Reality Smasher uh, Eldrazi list might be close. This one kind of has Noble Hierarch that the Eldrazi deck was running. It's got Stoneforge Mystic and Force of Negations and stuff like that that the Blue White deck is running, and it's got the Spell Queller to Fairy Time Raveler package that the Jeskai list is running. And I actually found that this deck was really really fun. 
because it was this kind of cool combination of trying to ramp into a really strong turn three play or sorry three mana play on turn two something like a teferi time raveler or having a spell queller up or something like that on turn two but also having the ability to kind of go long if it needed to with a good kind of counter package uh as well so the stack was running four force negations and two cryptic commands and three spell quellers so you had nine counter spells main deck uh that interaction that stan talked about a bunch on with teferi time raveler and spell queller is just kind of like pushed to the max in this deck because all of these creatures have really powerful entered the battlefield effects and so much so that restoration angel is actually even in this deck as a two of to be able to recycle things as well so you know the creature suite is two birds of paradise four noble hierarch that you get to play the sweet sweet Ice Fang Coatl and your two drop along with Stoneforge Mystic. So you have four Ice Fang Coatls, four Stoneforge Mystic, an Eternal Witness, three Spell Quellers, a Vendillion Click, and a restor- and two Restoration Angels. Um, and I just found this deck to be really fun. I think in the same way that kind of Stan was com- was talking about the Jeskai list, it's just a little bit more controlly and a little bit more kind of flash speed than the Jeskai deck, which is kind of a, a spells deck in a lot of ways. Um, I found that I had a lot better success rate with this deck than I did with the blue white deck because it has a more proactive plan, even though it has the ability to play a little bit of control with counter magic, it plays a little bit of disruption, I guess it's a better way to put it. And it's not as combo-y as like the Bant Soul Herder deck that's floating around right now, but it uses a lot of the same cards. So it has a lot of similar lines to play open to you, but your whole deck is not built around this idea of trying to establish some kind of lock around Eternal Witness and flashing it every turn. You just get these opportunities to be able to recycle cards that when you need them via Eternal Witness or or Resto and Eternal Witness or Teferi and Eternal Witness and things things like that. Um, I think that the big secret to this deck, as far as why it was good, is that this is a deck where the swords are very good because almost all the threats fly. So you have nine main deck flyers, I think, between Spell Queller, Restoration Angel, Ice Fang Coatl. Um, In a deck like that, even where Ice Fang Coatl is a 1-1... Having it be flying, it draws a card. You pick up some extra strength from Exalted Triggers off of Noble Hierarch, and then you can throw a sword on it. I, I found it to be really a good way to guarantee that you were going to get those triggers to happen. Dave, did you ever equip a sword to a Bird of Paradise? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I didn't count those. So if you count Bird of Paradise, I think there's 13 flying. Or no, sorry, 11 flyers in this deck, which is very cool, I think. And I, I put, you know, basically my plan with this deck all the time was I'm basically going to go for Sword of Fire and Ice and try to just accrue a bunch of card advantage with Sword of Fire and Ice if I can. And then if um, if I kind of need a backup or a longer game plan, then I'm going to go get Batter Skull and just kind of like hang back and try to control the ground a little bit, gain some life and stuff like that. Um, this brings me to one thing that I don't think we got to touch on a ton, which is I think the decision of whether to grab a sword or whether to grab a Batter Skull is highly highly deck dependent and something you should really understand when you sit down to play it's highly deck and highly matchup dependent in this deck you know i think that the there's a couple of keys that i would say really quickly one is if you think that your stoneforge mystic is going to be killed i tended to draw sword instead 
there because I wanted to make sure that I could get that card into play instead of potentially having to wait until turn five to cast my batter to hard cast my batter skull. Now in this deck, sometimes I could cast on turn four because of of uh, mana dorks, but whatever. That was the way that I thought about it a lot. The other thing is this deck had a lot of evasion, and so like Stan had Giver of Ruin runes, Giver of Runes in the Jeskai deck that gives a little bit of evasion. Similarly, this deck had flyers, which makes the swords even better, I think, in the long run. So I, I think those are kind of two dynamics to think about when you're trying to decide what to search up when you have a Stoneforge trigger on the sack. Two, two last points. The last thing that I think is really cool about this deck is that it gets to play Knight of Autumn. And I think in this metagame where there's a ton of Stoneforge Mystic around, Knight of Autumn is a super good card and having a chance to flash it back is also awesome. So much like the Eldrazi deck, Night of Autumn kind of fits into this one really well. So I, I loved it in this deck as well. Totally agree. I got to play with a little bit of Night of Autumn while testing Bant Soul Herder. And I think that card is good enough for main deck right now. Yep. So generally, I, I would give this deck a belief rating. I think this is the one that's a little bit easier for someone to pilot. Um, definitely more than the blue-white deck maybe the jeskai deck is in a similar zone where because they have proactive plans it's a little bit easier for someone to pick up and know what you're supposed to do with the deck i thought it was really fun to play i mean it didn't make that many waves in game uh, day two of the gp but you know there are only seven registered on day one and three of them made day two so i think that there might be a little bit of energy around this deck i just really loved being able to uh, leverage a bunch of these interesting cards and have a little bit more of that ability to go fast or slow all right everyone we dove, we swam, we held our breath, and we have been rewarded with a multitude of swords. Stan, thank you for your dive. Dave, thank you for your double dip. From here, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to return with a listener question. So stay with us. Batman had Joker. Superman had Lex Luthor. Captain had to kneel. Zach had Stan. Where do I fit into that equation? Uh, you're not part of this. this is a this is a me and Stan type issue. Honestly, I think Dave had Shane. <laughs> yeah, quite frankly. Well, he defeated him. He vanquished his foe. So like this is a model to look forward to. This week's question comes from patron Jason, who asks, Is modern better when there is a clear but stoppable bad guy? Someone to root against. Like the Patriots. I think yes. We're talking about Burn these past two weeks, and I like Burn as a bad guy. I think that Modern is better when there's a deck like that, especially if the deck can both be hated out and still get there sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, Burn is a deck that if you can dodge the people with a life gain or can have only that, that sort of deal, where I think we're, we're in a place where if a deck can be consistent, but if they get their bad matchups, they're out, and they can't force through them like Hogak or other decks we're not going to mention good. I think things like that are good for modern and good for magic overall, and it gives sort of a face to the format as well, where it's a good place to buy in or a deck you know is good. Like, I would recommend someone buy Burn right now 100%. There's, I don't think there's any danger of a ban. I think it's easy to pick up, but kind of hard to master, so that's a fun thing to do as well. And I think that modern is better when there is a clear but stoppable bad guy. Honestly, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. Because on the, on the one hand, when there's no boogeyman, I think it creates an atmosphere where people get to play whatever they want, which is ultimately good for the format. On the other hand, when there is a clear boogeyman, I think it gives people a lot of direction with their deck building, with their sideboard choices, 
uh, with their deck selection. And I think it kind of answers a lot of unknowns that don't exist when the format is wide open. So I can like totally see an argument for both, but in terms of personal preference, like I kind of hated Hokak Summer, right? It, 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 it stunk when it felt like the deck was unbeatable and Jason had a really important caveat in his question, which was the bad guy needs to be stoppable. And I think that's the condition where it's kind of okay. Like I'm biased because I played Is It Phoenix, but I think in the end, a lot of people figured out how to beat Is It Phoenix and it became a very stoppable bad guy. Same for humans before that. Not so much for KCI, but whatever the case, like I think when people have direction and information, that's a good thing. I think when people feel like they get to play whatever they want, that's also a good thing. So yeah, I thought Shane, we were talking about this with Shane over the chat earlier, and I thought he had an interesting point where he said that one problem with the stoppable idea with the bad guy is that in modern, it often means I drew my powerful hate and you didn't draw your anti-hate. So that means I didn't get to stop you or I did get to stop you. And that can be not fun sometimes. There's just decks out there that are like that. And so if, for example, Dredge gets to be too big or too prevalent, and there's a lot of people who are like, I got rest in peace and dredge is like, I got force of vigor or nature's (laughs) claim. Then, you know, that's not a super fun way to go. I think that my take on this question is, I think it's great when you have your own personal nemesis. Mm. Once again, me and Stan, you and Shane. Yeah. Dave, I think you're onto something there. That I think it's a lot more fun when you know the deck that you hate playing against and you have to try to figure out how to stop it. You know, I don't like playing against Tron. I hate playing against Tron. I feel like I lose to it no matter <laughs> what deck I'm playing. And, you know, that lends an interesting dimension to things for me because I start to wonder, well, is it emotional? Am I making bad decisions because I just hate Tron? I feel like those Wait, are okay, personal. Sorry, is, is that about Magic the Gathering or is that sort of a life thing you tell yourself? Am I making bad decisions because I hate Tron? Oh, definitely life decisions. I walk down the street all the time and I'm like, why can't I just eat a salad? <laughs> it's because of Tron. Karn! Karn! I have to have a scone. Um, it's Which meal of the day are you deciding between scone and salad? <laughs> Uh, breakfast it's a late breakfast but too early for lunch brunch (laughs) brunch um i i so i think that's a little bit more interesting to me than the idea of everybody shares the same bad guy i'd rather us each enjoy and talk about and have individual slack channels about our individual bad guys (laughs) so i have a question which dave i think it's very interesting and i think i have something that is not a counterpoint but in addition to that so Stan, your point, you mentioned how you think it's good when there's not a specific boogeyman because people have the chance to experiment and work around. My question is, and it's a little bit leading because I clearly think this, but don't you think the way that modern inherently is, is that eventually a deck will bubble up and become the boogeyman and that any sort of state in which there isn't one is a part uh, is a state of movement or state of transition and we're waiting to go to the next boogeyman? Or do you think there is a modern possible where there is a bunch of good decks, but no one to hate against. I think for that scenario to become possible, they would have to stop printing new cards. Oh, well, that's sad. But no, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's the format's totally cyclical. I mean, a deck could emerge and become a powerhouse and then die down just a couple months later. Um, so we are definitely in that cycle. But I kind of love this moment we're in right now where it's like 
I don't know if the best deck is Wurza or Burn, and the strategies against both of them are quite different. So I just have to have like a really diverse plan that can deal with almost anything. I think that's kind of yeah. cool and a, a unique challenge in and of itself. And then you lose to Titan, <laughs> which, by the way, is another deck that I hate. I hate playing against Titan, Amulet Titan. Oh, God. It's so brutal. I have so much yeah. I want to say. A, Ashok, Dream Renderer, great against Titan. Consider that mm-hmm. if that's a, a matchup mm-hmm, you're struggling mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dave, I, I love what you said about having your own nemesis because this blue moon list that I ran this weekend was developed entirely by a streamer known as the pen sword who all the credit for the deck's architecture goes to him. Like he's been testing it nonstop and blue moon is his strategy of choice. And he has a very Wurza focused sideboard plan, um, running like the rampaging Ferocidon, that three mana abandoned standard once upon a time card um and i went into this tournament like expecting that worse is going to be hard i have all these tools i want to see if i could beat it and then like i had such great results against that deck particularly it felt so much more rewarding than if it was just any other deck that like i just wanted to win against so emotions do matter yeah i mean that's part of the fun right is being like i am a blue white control player and i hate playing against tron or i am a jund player and i hate playing against decks with blood moon or whatever like that's that's an interesting part of the the dynamic of the cool identities that come along with being a participant in modern specifically because there's a good chance you know like we've talked about a bunch of times as much as the meta shifts and as much as things get broken sometimes at your store if you are you know player x you know, whatever that archetype is, you probably get to stay player X for a long, long time. It's when you start to get to big, big tournaments that you have to worry about whether you're going to run into 25 Hogak decks in a row. I want, we have a couple minutes. I want to end this episode on a very positive note and invite my co-host for a one word response to a question that I have. <laughs> how, how, wait, how positive? This is going to yeah, be so why positive. Why is that positive? <laughs> it's very possible and positive. In a word, what's a deck you love playing against? And I'll kick us off. I love playing against Storm. I think those games are always super interesting. It really forces you to be conservative with your interaction and knowing how that deck works and your windows of opportunity to beat it. And then if you mess up, you get punished almost immediately because your opponent takes 10 minutes to win on the spot. Like, I love that. I'm into it. I know it's a deck a lot of people hate playing against, but it's one that I've always found enjoyable. You said one word, then said like 50. I was just going to say Stan. <laughs> say one word and then give me like a three paragraph backup for that word say one word and then it's a debate team <laughs> in the word guys i'm i made the rules i didn't say i was going to follow them so my my answer to this question is i have two one is in fact because i always beat in fact i don't know why but every time i come across it on magic online it almost doesn't matter what deck i'm playing i just I always, I always beat it, which is great because, you know, I'm a little spiky and so I like to win. So cool. Um, the other one was, I'm not sure if this is a blanket statement, but this past couple of weeks when I've been playing these Stoneforge Mystic decks, I've had some pretty fun matches against Jund, especially with the Bant list, where it's kind of these two interesting different takes on mid range going up against each other. And trying to figure out, I had some great kind of leveling plays against the Jun list where I was trying to intuit, you know, 
that they had a K command in their hand. So I was holding on to my batter skull as long as I could and trying to draw out them using their K command and all this kind of back and forth action. And it was pretty, pretty fun. It stretched the game out like eight extra turns as we kind of played chicken with each other. And I think that's one of the most fun things that happens with Stoneforge Mystic. And so that was kind of fun to participate in. So I think I do kind of like mid-range mirrors now and again in their different decks. So am I answering with a word that I like or that I don't like? What's a deck you like playing against? Well, I really liked Phoenix when Phoenix was around. But I don't know anymore. I feel like I just like it all. Uh, all. All is the word. A-L-L. Submit that, please. Cool. That was easy. Cut, print, ship it. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel where you get to chat with us while we're trying to look busy at work. Everyone's happy. Also, we launched an Instagram, so you can find us on Instagram at the dive down all one word where we post little sneak peeks from upcoming episodes. Sometimes we'll post the decks that we're playing with. Just another avenue to interact with us and get a glimpse of what's to come. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and wield a sword! I like telling our listeners to buy a sword, but you're probably right. That's not responsible of us.